And I spent 10 years there. And it was a really interesting decade because, you know, sort of three things happened. One is the company grew exponentially. So when I joined, there were two offices, about 30 people, and maybe about 20 million in revenue. And by the time I left, we had 2,500 people in 17 offices across the globe and 300 million in revenue. So massive growth for the company. I also got to grow alongside the company. So I went from junior most person on the team to running branding and communications for the firm globally. And then the third thing that happened was that the industry was changing. So when I joined, it was very traditional marketing. You know, what, what you do did not exist at the time, right? It was direct mail and event marketing and just very traditional marketing. And during my tenure there, digital marketing was born. And then from there, performance marketing. And and so I got to grow up with those things, you know, learning about them as they were coming out, um, which was really interesting. Liana Duye-Guzman, intrapreneista and CMO at Skillshare, kicked off her career dreaming of becoming a lawyer and never expecting to work in marketing. Fast forward to today, she has spearheaded innovative marketing initiatives as VP of marketing at both Axiom and Blockchain, and finally leaving the cryptocurrency space to become the CMO at Skillshare. You're about to hear Liana's best advice for climbing the corporate ladder, getting the promotion you deserve, and knowing your worth. She also shares insights into how 2020 has impacted her day-to-day, from pivoting a major marketing campaign to parenting, and why being upfront about your boundaries and working hours is more important than ever before. Coming up, you'll hear how COVID-19 has affected the hiring pool and office dynamics, why a mentor should tell you the hard truths in addition to being a cheerleader how no negotiation salaries have evened up the hiring playing field, why you should be asking your boss for a promotion a year before you actually want it. The two questions Liana asks every new job candidate before hiring them. And finally, why you should redo your resume once a year and continuously make sure you are growing in your role. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Liana, I am so excited to sit down with you over Zoom now and have this conversation about your career journey because it is quite incredible. I know we connected a few weeks ago and I had learned a little bit about you, but I'm so excited to share your story and career journey with our audience. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. I had so much fun when we chatted a couple weeks ago, so I'm excited to continue the conversation. Absolutely. So I know that you initially started your career thinking that you wanted to be a lawyer, but now you are the CMO of Skillshare. Can you take us back through your career journey and how you ended up in the career in now? Absolutely. Yeah. So I I come from a, a line of, so I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and from Connecticut. My mom's from Connecticut. My dad's from Puerto Rico. And I grew the first half of my childhood was spent in Puerto Rico. And that entire side of the family 
is other than my dad, actually, but my aunt, my grandfather, my cousins are all either lawyers or my grandfather was a legal librarian. And I grew up thinking my aunt in particular, I really looked up to. And I just thought I want to be her when I grow up. So my aunt would handle this one big case a year and it would pay then for her to support people who couldn't afford lawyers the rest of the year. And so I graduated college thinking that's what I wanted to do. And I, but I really wanted to move to New York City. And so I took a year what I planned to be two years to be a paralegal and then go on to law school. And when I was a paralegal, what I realized was just how rare my aunt's career was and that it just wasn't what most lawyers got to do. And so as I looked at what lawyers did, I realized I was not all that interested in it. And I was coming to that realization. I had a friend of a friend who invited me to, to connect with the New York Film Academy. They were looking for a marketing director and I turned them down twice. I hate to admit this, but I just... I did not think marketing was a real career. I did not think that people who wanted serious careers went into marketing. And so I turned them down. Eventually, they kind of stayed with me enough that I had to look into it before I could turn it down again. And what I realized was that marketing actually had the power to change people's lives and that it could really define the way that people interact with some of the most transformative technologies in the world. And so I joined the New York Film Academy very briefly. It was more of a sales role than a traditional brand marketing role, and then landed at Axiom, which is a professional services firm primarily focused in the legal sphere. And it felt like a combination of those two things. It was the law meeting the marketing. And I spent 10 years there. And it was a really interesting decade because, you know, sort of three things happened. One is the company grew exponentially. So when I joined, there were two offices, about 30 people, and maybe about 20 million in revenue. And by the time I left, we had 2,500 people in 17 offices across the globe and 300 million in revenue. So massive growth for the company. I also got to grow alongside the company. So I went from junior most person on the team to running branding and communications for the firm globally. And then the third thing that happened was that the industry was changing. So when I joined, it was very traditional marketing. You know, what, what you do did not exist at the time, right? It was direct mail and event marketing and just very traditional marketing. And during my tenure there, digital marketing was born. And then from there, performance marketing. And, and so I got to grow up with those things, you know, learning about them as they were coming out, um, which was really interesting. And then from there, I was recruited into blockchain. I was their first marketing hire. Turned them down three times. There is a pattern here. I literally at one point said to the recruiter, I do not want to work with unicorn monopoly money. And I do not know how she kept on me after that statement, but thankfully she did. So I joined as their first executive marketing hire. And then three months into the job, sort of lifted my head and realized that marketing comp comprised maybe 30% of what I spent my time doing. I was It was a classic startup startup. Like, you just, you saw a problem and you grabbed it and it didn't matter if it didn't fall into your world. And so ended up becoming the chief operating officer there, partnering really closely with Peter, the, the CEO, to just help, you know, build the strategy and help grow the company from 4 million to 40 million users and help with revenue generation. And then had my second daughter. And I don't think this is true for everyone, but for me, I think it's a natural moment of inflection. And I realized, you know, I was not as passionate about cryptocurrency as I thought the chief operating officer of the biggest crypto company should be. And I really, when I looked at my job, I felt like the part I still love the most was the marketing and communication side. And I, I had built this incredible team and they didn't need me. And I felt like I could walk away and they would be just fine. And so made that very difficult decision. 
and thought it would take a really long time to find the right next thing, but landed at Skillshare. And I've been there for about a year and it's been, you know, as more wonderful than I, than I hoped it would be. So I have so many questions for you, but first I'm Puerto Rican too. So I can definitely relate to growing up in a mixed culture household, but we can talk about that at another time. Yes. What do you think kept you at Axiom for 10 years? I feel like these days it's very common to see people jump around after a year, a few months, or even several years, but to stay at a company for 10 years, there has to be a big reason behind that. And I'd love to know what kept you. Yeah, I think it's such a good question. You know, I think I think it comes down to the people. So I also wasn't all that passionate about legal services per se, but I was really passionate about the impact that the company was having on people's lives. So I would talk to lawyers who, you know, did all the right things. They went to the fancy schools and the big law firms, and then they became moms or dads and they never saw their kids. And they would come to Axiom and they would practice law at really blue chip companies like Goldman Sachs. They could come home and have dinner with their families. And I was really inspired by that. But then also, and, and perhaps more importantly, or, or at least equally important, is just the people I worked with every day. So it was just an incredibly inspiring, smart, wonderful group of people. And the people that I reported into were always just so open to letting me steepen the learning curve every time that I reached a plateau. So, you know, when I sort of found myself feeling like I could do my job as closed, I would just add a new thing to it. I would say like, hey, can I own PR now? Can I own social? Can I own growth marketing? Can I own event? Like whatever it was. And they always said, yes, there was, you know, it was like, yeah, go for it. And so I felt like I just kept learning. And I think for me, that's the biggest reason to stay in a job is do you feel like you're getting better every day? And, and for a very long time, the answer was yes at Axiom. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I had the same question when, when Courtney, when Courtney asked that to you, because you really don't typically see that anymore. And I'm wondering, you know, during those years, did you have a mentor at the company that helped you, you know, learn these new skills within your role as it continued to grow? Yeah. So I, it's funny, I did, but I wouldn't say she necessarily sort of taught me these skills. I think, so it was my boss, Courtney, who actually has become one of my best friends. And it wasn't that she taught me skills that she had that I needed to learn. It was that she created the space for me to go out and learn things. So, you know, she cleared the path for me and supported me and pushed me, you know, part of, part of mentorship isn't cheerleading. I mean, that, that's, that is one part of it, but it's not the whole thing. I think a lot of it, or at least some of it is also telling people hard truths, you know? So a lot of what I learned from her was, was how to strengthen some of my weaknesses, you know, like she's much more detail oriented than me. And, you know, earlier on in my career, I remember thinking, why does that matter? Why do we need to document every single thing we're doing? Like, we'll remember, let's just do it. And, you know, it took, took a while, but, and I, it took me being annoyed that I document things. I felt like it was a waste of time. And then that documentation saves your ass at some point, you know, and, or, or you learn just by documenting something that you should have done it differently. And so it was things, so it was partially that she pushed me in ways that I would not have known to push myself. And it was partially that I learned from watching her. And then it was partially that she cleared the path for me to, to not learn from her. And she had the confidence for that to be okay, right? She was one of those incredible first boss and, and then mentors who genuinely, like she would say, I want you to have my job. And eventually I did get her job. Eventually she left and I got her job. And that is true. That is what she wanted for me. And you know, when I was thinking about leaving blockchain and taking the Skillshare opportunity, 
she was the first call I made after my family, right? It was, you know, and then I talked to her husband and, you know, it was like, what do you guys think I should do? And so she continues to be a huge, a huge mentor for me. I love hearing that. That's definitely a a really great story. A lot of people listening are probably wondering what I'm about to ask you, which is when it comes time to ask for a promotion or a raise, if it's not, you know, being awarded to you without you asking, what is your approach to that? Because I heard you say that, you know, you're always raising your hand, asking for more and more responsibilities, but were there ever any times where you really had to advocate for yourself and say, at this point, I've taken on this and I've taken on that. It's time for some sort of a promotion or, or raise. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think particularly as women, you know, I think one of the things that I learned early on was that no matter how much you love the people you work with or how much they love you, it is a business, you know, and as they're going to treat it as a business. So you have to treat it as a business. And for me, I remember having a conversation with the publisher of Time Out and somebody asked a very similar question. And she said, I always did the job I wanted before I got it. And so, and I think that's always been my attitude, but I think the other, the other approach that I've had is, and, and I've, you know, I learned this a bit the hard way is I never asked for promotion when I wanted it. I asked for it six to 12 months before I wanted it. And I would ask in, in not, can I have the promotion today? You know, I would ask in the context of what do you, what do you need to see for me in the next six to 12 months to be excited about giving me that promotion? Like, what does that look like for you? Because I find that what happens is you know, most good managers want to promote their team. I think it's a timing issue. So I think getting on the same page around that timing really early on, and then also getting on the same page around performance and and milestones so that you can be hitting those and make that argument in a way that doesn't feel like you're climbing uphill. It feels like they're excited to give it to you, I think really helps. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. So at Skillshare, I'm the chief marketing officer. And I oversee the brand team, the creative team, the performance marketing team, and then sales and partnerships as well. So my job is essentially how we position ourselves externally falls under my purview and then the sales and and partnership side as well. What is your day-to-day like? Because it sounds like you might have a lot of people or different departments as you shared reporting to you. So how do you manage all of that? Yeah, I think for me, it's you hire great people. And so for, so most of my day is just having conversations with those people and, you know, asking them questions to get them to think about things maybe a little bit differently than they would otherwise, pushing them when I need to, supporting them. So it's, it's really, I'm in a role now where I'm doing not, not a lot of actual individual contributor work. Like I'm not actually creating our campaigns anymore. I'm, I'm here to hire and empower the, the people who can. And so, so my day, you know, I would say half of my week is dedicated to, you know, m- more senior strategic efforts. So meeting with the executive team on things that actually extend beyond my purview. So talking about company-wide prioritization, company-wide strategy, you know, and then the other half is, is focused on team-specific initiatives, which is really more about making sure that we're on track and that, and that folks have the ability to get their jobs done. How big is your team? It's just over 20 people. And I want to hear a little bit about your recruiting and hiring process. And especially now that many of us are working remotely, is your whole team currently working remotely as well? Yes. So we are, we've actually made the decision to go remote for good. So we are um, becoming a distributed workforce. And, you know, in terms of hiring, I actually, one of the things that I think is really powerful about being remote is that you can open the doors to folks who might not otherwise have been candidates for roles. And so one of the things that we're really focused on as an organization is diversity and inclusion. 
It's something that we're, we've always felt really passionately about. But I think one of the things that we, so, so we've had policies like no negotiation salaries for a long time, which we find really evens the playing field for folks because it tends to be women and people of color who end up not negotiating as hard. Like white men are trained to negotiate from birth, basically. So they end up getting bigger salaries. And so, and those efforts really paid off, but we weren't actually, it really helped from a gender diversity perspective. It was not having the impact that we wanted it to have from a racial underrepresentation perspective. And so, so, you know, there are a lot of things that we do. Like we have a two week period where we only hire from underrepresented racial groups. We partner with organizations that have, you know, inroads into different communities that, that we can source from. But, and related to this question is, you know, another big thing that we've seen is that we can hire now from, we don't, we're not limited to hiring in New York City. So we can hire from places, uh, you know, a, a broader array of places, which then allows us to actually increase our diversity. Have you hired anyone new during this time? Yeah, we've hired a few people onto the team. And I will say it's challenging. Like I, w- I was just talking to somebody on the team who said, it's been hard. She, you know, she is somebody who, who f- feeds off the energy of being in an office with people. Um, and so for some people, it's great. Like we hired one person who's been working remote for a long time, probably would not have been able to bring her onto the team if we weren't distributed because we wouldn't have been able to justify somebody, you know, from a different state. So in that case, it was really great. We've hired a couple of other people who have said it's really hard. It's really hard to connect with people. And I think part of that, to be honest, is less about being a distributed workforce and more about being a distributed workforce in COVID times. Mm-hmm. Because I think in non-COVID times and, and you know, hopefully we'll get there sooner rather than later. Like we can still get together for coffees. We can find ways to meet as a team, you know, once a quarter, if not more often. And I find like that's actually more powerful sometimes to meet with people less often, but more deeply. I think the challenge right now is, you know, we're completely remote. We don't have any opportunities to meet in person. And I think people are just carrying a tremendous emotional load, you know? And so I think what energy people have would have had in the past to go out of their way to meet for coffees and some of those more social interactions, I think people are just kind of spent and they don't have the space for that emotionally. What are some of the, you know, go-to interview questions that you tend to ask? I always ask people for their biggest mistake and what they're most proud of. And, you know, for biggest mistake, I'm looking for honest mistakes because I, because I think I don't want to hire someone who everyone makes mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. And if you don't feel like you make mistakes, then you're not right for any team that I'm, that I'm on. Um, but more importantly, if you're not the kind of person, you know, I'm, I'm really looking for a growth mindset. And if you're not the kind of person who looks to mistakes as an opportunity for learning and an opportunity to get better, and you're not taking the time to reflect on those and improve the way that you, you know, um, you work, then, then that's a big concern for me. And then on the proud side, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I want people who to take pride in their work. I want people who feel really proud of the work that they do. Not everything, right? Like we all have to do things we're not super excited about. But overall, you should look back and feel really proud. And I think that just speaks to internal drive, right? Like if if you're comfortable doing something where you're never proud of the work you're putting out into the world, then that's not necessarily the mindset that I'm looking for either. So those are two questions that are always on my list. Those are definitely good ones. Coming up. You'll hear how Liana pivoted Skillshare's marketing strategy when COVID-19 hit and why her team's well-being is such a crucial part of her job. When Stephanie and I made the decision to, to stay remote and we're still undecided in how the office will open up again, were you involved in the decision with Skillshare? And imagine it's a big decision for, for such a 
big company. How many total employees do they have? We have about 120. 120. Yeah. I was involved. So that that's one of the, that's an example of sort of like the bigger strategic decisions that that I spend some of my time making. The exe- the entire executive team. So so our chief operating officer runs people operations. So she and our CEO certainly led the decision making on that front, but the entire executive team weighed in. And we, you know, we sent out a survey to our staff to ask folks, you know, what their ideal future work state looked like. And what we found was that the the great majority, in fact, all but four people at the company did not want to come back full time. Now, there was some variability there. I think for some folks, they were very taken aback when we made the decision to go remote because even though they didn't want to come back full time, they did want to be able to go somewhere once or twice a week. So, you know, we were kicking off a partnership with a company called Industrious. So when things open up again, people will be able to work from industrious locations and they'll be able to work as groups, which I think is the, the part that is that people are really hungry for. It's not just about getting out of their house. That's part of it. But I think part of it is just being able to see colleagues, talk about your weekend, ask how the night was. And so, you know, that that's something that that we're going to roll out for the company. But yeah, so so, you know, we were all involved in that decision and it was not an easy one. But we just felt like the benefits far outweighed the risks. We also were in a unique position because our lease is up next month. So to sign a new lease in this world would have been sort of insane. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, definitely doesn't make sense to do so. You know, at first I was very concerned for all of these shared office spaces when the pandemic first started. And now I think shared office space business is going to be the next booming business because no one's going to want to re-sign long leases. That's right. I mean, like, you know, if you signed a lease in February, I mean, there's no way out of that. And you're just, you know, wasted office space. Um, So yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think those companies, I think they'll have to pivot their business model a little bit, but I think that's, that's probably the future of work. And speaking of pivoting business models and strategies during the pandemic, did you have to, you know, completely switch your marketing strategy for Skillshare? Yeah, we did. So we launched a new brand identity in January. So we had already, we had sort of just recently pivoted the business as a whole. And we had a a marketing plan that I will be honest, relied fairly heavily on in-person experiences. So Mm. part of the hypothesis for the coming year was one of the things that really differentiates us in the market is our community and finding opportunities to bring that community to life in person and allow people to connect more deeply was a big part of our strategy. And, and, you know, it wasn't just about the events, you know, we were hoping to use that then to feed a content strategy and, and a press strategy. And so that all went out the window. We had to rethink how we were going to structure that. And so that was an entirely new challenge that we were facing. You know, other things like we tested out of home at the beginning of the year and found that to be relatively successful enough that we wanted to continue testing that. And we did a little bit of it. Like we took over the wall in Soho above the Adidas store. For those of you listening who are familiar with New York, it's a pretty iconic downtown out of home location because the prices were just insane. And, you know, we assessed the the COVID situation and there was still a lot of foot and, and car traffic. So we felt like it was worthwhile, but doing something like a subway takeover did not make sense. And that's something that we might've considered otherwise. And so, so we did, we had to pivot. I think on the flip side, a lot of our value proposition really came to life when when folks were given stay-at-home orders. So, you know, we saw tremendous growth during that period, you know, two and three X engagement numbers and user signups. And so so I think whatever we lost in not being able to execute against the plan we had initially had, we really made up for in, you know, in the, the awareness of online education and the impact that it can have on people's lives came to light in a way that, you know, we could have spent a lot of money 
trying to convince folks of and, and the world sort of did it for us. How are you handling planning for next year? I still feel like there's so much unknown. Yeah. What's the best way to reach people? Where are people going to be? <laughs> yeah, I am assuming that we're all going to be home for the next year. And I, and I think the thing is, it will be easy enough to layer in non-virtual or remote opportunities if that changes. So for me, the risk reward just isn't there in terms of taking a gamble on when things will open up. So we're really planning for mostly digital experiences next year. And the way that we structure you know, our, our brand efforts is we actually we do these biannual sprints where we plan out quarterly themes for the next three to four quarters. So we know, like we already know what our theme is through the first quarter of next year. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll know what our themes are through the end of next year. So, and then we take those themes and we build activations around them. So online advertising, partnerships, TV spots, you know, we sort of, depending on what, and then there's always one or two activations that feel a little bit different. And so, yeah, so that's how we think about it. And so, and those themes to me are, are universal, whether, you know, we're all back to, you know, pre-COVID life or we're a new version of normal or we're living the way we're living today or things get worse. You know, I don't know where on the spectrum we're going to be. My sense is that it's going to get worse before it gets better again. And so, you know, I think for us, when you have a, a really clear vision of what you want to communicate, how you communicate it becomes a lot easier. I think where people get into trouble is when they're focused on the channels first, and then those channels suddenly change, and now you're figuring out how to, how to solve for that. Versus, you know, we know what the vision is for Q1. We can create 100 different versions of it based on what's available to us. Can you share a time that some of your marketing strategies that you've come up with just didn't hit the mark and maybe what you learned from it? Yeah. You know, we did this. It, I always feel feel bad with these sorts of questions because I feel like I'm, you know, selling one of my babies down the river. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I, two things come to mind. When I was at Axiom, we did this campaign that is still one of my favorite campaigns of all time. It was this direct mail piece, and it was about helping teams solve their hardest legal problems. And it was a bag of nuts and a nutcracker. And you opened it, and it said, like, tough nut to crack, question mark. And it had a whole thing about us. And, and it was just a – I let, love that campaign. It did not drive the interest that I expected it to. And I think those are always really hard. You know, when you have something that you, you know, it's been, what, 10 years since I, since we did that and I still love it. Like it's still, I still have a couple of them upstairs in my portfolio because I just think it is such a like witty little thing, but it just, it, it didn't drive the the impact that we wanted. And I think that's, that's something that I think a lot about, right, is this idea of what is the impact, impact, for, like intent versus impact, which I think is something I think about all the time in so many different ways. But I think, you know, you have to start with the end point to some degree. Like, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And then the other, the other thing I really focus hard on following that is just incrementalism. So testing messages in small, cheap, quick ways to see if they land so that if they don't, you're not spending a ton of money on that mistake. You've spent a little bit of money and it's not actually a mistake. You learned something. And so, so that's one example that, that comes to mind. And that's, you know, sort of how it has shifted my experiences. I like that campaign. I would have, I would have liked to get that in the mail. <laughs> yeah, right? I liked it. <laughs> what about a campaign you're most proud of? Oh, uh, such a great question. You know, we just launched a commercial for Skillshare called Complex. And the the language starts with like, you are not a brand, you are not a social media profile. Like it, it's all about how, you know, you are this complex being and you should 
lean into all the various facets of who you are. Mm. And I think what I'm most proud of with that campaign is, is, you know, other side of the, the story here is the impact it had. So, you know, we had people, so we, we released it on pre-roll before we put it on our YouTube channel, maybe 48 hours before or not. It was just, you know, it, very shortly after we put it on our YouTube channel. But even in that 48 hours, we got tremendous outreach from folks to our support team saying, I just saw this ad on pre-roll on YouTube. Is Can you send it to me? I want to watch it again. You know, people have reached out to board members and our staff to say, I saw this ad and I cried. Like I just, it's, it hit me right in my heart. And, and I love it because it's not a direct response ad. Like it, it wasn't like do this to have that. It was really tapping into a feeling that we know that we want people to, you know, that we think people have and that we wanted to tap into and it had a great impact. And so I think for me, that's, that's something, you know, recently that I'm really, that I'm really proud of. And, and I'm proud of the team that did it. And I think, you know, we've got this incredible creative and brand team on the company at the company. And it it was, you know, I mean, they shot it and it was out live within weeks. You know, it's a sort of ad that looks like it would take six months and it didn't, it was, they did it really quickly. And in the middle of the shoot, somebody came back with a positive COVID diagnosis. So we had to shut down our shooting. So the whole idea for the ad was actually somewhat different. And within 48 hours, they were able to turn it around and find a way to use the footage that we had to create a message that was just as powerful as the one that we were intending to put out into the world. So I think for a variety of reasons, that's something that I, that I'm really proud of, you know, in recent memory. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to watch that. Well, now I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to go watch that ad. Where can we find it? Sure. So if you go to our YouTube channel, so Skillshare's YouTube channel, you can find it. And it's called Complex. Perfect. Thank you. And I, I'd like to know, do you have any best practices on how to keep the team collaborative and energized while working remotely? I know for me personally, I am working around the clock. Yeah. I, I don't. It's like, you know, I think we're trying, we're all trying to figure it out. And so part of it for me is just being really honest with my team about that. Like I, I'm a really big believer. You have to bring your whole self to work. And so, you know, like when Brianna Taylor, when the grand jury came back and said they weren't going to indict the police officers, like that was a hard day. It was a hard day for my whole team. And we happen to have a team meeting and normally we go around and we do a social sort of how it has everybody doing. And, you know, I essentially just said like, today's a hard day. Like share if you want to, don't if you, you know, so, so some of it is that some of it is just really driving home the message that, you know, I think we're, we're doing incredible work at Skillshare, but you know, if we want to do it, we can't burn out. And so, you know, like if somebody's supposed to be off and they're sending me messages, I'm going to follow up and say, you're supposed to be off because I, I don't want that to be, those to be empty words. You know, I think, and, and some of it is just listening to what the team wants. So, you know, when they want more social interactions, we create more opportunities for that. When they're feeling burnt out and they actually want less time on Zoom, we kind of push those off to the side. But I don't have the perfect answer. I think we're all trying to figure it out. And like I said, I think there's a really big difference. Like I think if you ask me this question in a year, I'll have a much more thoughtful response around how, you know, playbook. Like, here's what my team does. You know, we do quarterly get-togethers and they're half business and half fun. We do X, Y, or Z. I think in COVID times, you have to just be responsive to what's happening in the world and, and be able to just meet people where they are. And then, you know, the only other thing I will say is I do have office hours on my calendar every week. And so it's just an opportunity for people to come and connect with me about anything. You want to complain about something, go for it. You, you're worried about something, let's talk it through. You want to vent, you want to 
strategize, you want to brainstorm, whatever it is, you know, so I think just also having that access where people know that they can come to me at, a, you know, at least once a week, but really at any time, you know, hopefully creates those clear channels of communication. That's such a great idea. Do you find your team takes advantage of your office hours in a good way? But you're, they're yeah. <laughs> Not as much as, as I had hoped to be honest. So yeah. So I, I would say like I have one next week, somebody has set up 30 minutes. I do actually get a fair bit. And this actually makes me feel pretty great. I do get a fair bit of folks not taking advantage of the office hours per se, but throwing time on my calendar randomly when they need it. And that's something I'm really grateful for because I really want the team to know that I am always accessible and that literally the most important part of my job is their well-being. No, that, that's really, really great. And I think it's so important as a leader that your team knows that and that they know you're there to help them and support them. You just sound like an incredible person to, to work for, for sure. I'm sure you would hear two, you know, multiple versions of that. Um, <laughs> I try, I try, damn it. <laughs> how do you handle, because clearly you give people the space to vent and complain and share feedback, which I think is so wonderful, but what is your approach to, to hearing people complain maybe about things that you just don't have an answer for? Although I, I believe there's a solution for everything, but. A lot of it is listening. So a lot of it is like, you know, I find, and, and I mentioned my mentor, Courtney, from earlier in my career, you know, I'm a fixer. So she would give me feedback and I would dive right into like, well, well either here's why I don't think it's right or, well, here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And one of the best pieces of advice she gave me much earlier in my career was, you got to just sit with it. Mm. You got to sit with the feedback. One, and, and there are two really good things that happen when you sit with it. One is you realize that some of the gut reaction that you had when you give it a little bit of space, you, you no longer have. So there have been times when it's like my instinct is, well, that's totally wrong. And then I sit with it and I'm like, oh, there's actually some validity to that. And so I think it gives you a more clear-eyed approach. Two, when you do go back, if you do happen to disagree, that disagreement is far better received because people feel like you at least gave, gave their concerns a real opportunity to be heard. And so I learned that way early on in my career. And I think that that's still something that I practice, particularly in moments like this, where a lot of it for me is listening. And it's hard, I think, when you're in management because there are a lot of things that you can't share with folks. And so, you know, sometimes folks have only partial story and, and that can be really challenging. And then there are times when you feel like you're working really hard and it's not appreciated or, you know, something like, and, and you're like, wait a minute, I want to tell you all the reasons that, it, that I am trying really hard. And I think if you jump into that, you lose the actual, the, the benefit of really hearing what they have to say. And so for me, a lot of it is walking away from the feedback before I respond to it. And then when I do disagree with it, I think for me, you know, a lot of it is just building the foundations that allow you to disagree. So I'm not always going to get it right. And I'm going to admit when I don't, but there are also times when you think I'm getting it wrong and I think I'm getting it right. And we're going to disagree about that. But my hope is that I have shown you enough vulnerability and humility and openness that when we do disagree, you're going to give me the benefit of the doubt. And that has to be earned over time. You can't, I mean, you can't make that happen. So, you know, when I joined Skillshare, I don't think I made a decision for four months, really. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, I just listened and learned and saw how people operated and, you know, and, um, and then, you know, by the time I was ready to push folks, I feel like they, I built foundations from which I could push. And yeah, I also learned there were things that I would have pushed on a month in that I realized four months in, I shouldn't be pushing on. What did you do? Did you just set up lots of one-on-one -on -one meetings to just take in as much information as you could in this new role? I did. I sent a survey at the end of my 90 days to ask folks what I could be doing better. I did a lot of one-on-ones. I sat in on you know, every single team meeting. I asked just a lot of questions. 
you know, and I would be in a meeting and I would be just writing questions, questions, questions. And then I would go back after and look at the questions and figure out like, what can I answer for myself? Where should I be asking? And so, yeah, I just, it was a lot of just listen. It was like a listening tour. Up next, how Liana juggles being a mom of two and the demands of her job at Skillshare and her best tips to help you set boundaries. Liana, so we connected through the Hey Mama group that we're both in, and I was so excited when Katya introduced us because I had heard a little bit about your story and journey, but most importantly, as you shared, you're also a mom to two amazing children and now working from home in this incredible high-powered position. How are you managing managing and running your family and you know your position at Skillshare? Do you have tips and advice you can share for other working moms? Yeah, I think some of it is like, let's stop being so hard on ourselves. You know, like I have this this story that when I was at Axiom, our president, I was on a call with our president and three other women. I was I was the only one in the office that day. Everybody else was working from home. They all had kids. I think this was before I had kids, actually. And I just remember, like, I happened to know that one of them worked in her closet because it was the only place where she could close the bedroom door and the closet door and the kids couldn't be heard. And another one was like hiding in the attic. And I remember the president of the company who was a white man, mid-sentence stopped talking and started answering a question of his kids. And I had this like aha moment where I realized that like men just, you know, let, let their work product speak for itself. And, and this is not true for everybody. I'm overgeneralizing, but, but I've seen this a number of times in my life where I just think women are really look, they're judged differently. So it comes from a really fair place, but they're too hard on themselves, right? They, they feel like they have to almost hide the fact that there are moms at home with kids. And I think there are times when that happens, right? Like the conversation I had with my five-year-old before I came in for this was like, you do not come in that room. Do not come in the room while I'm having this conversation. And like, you know, I don't, I, I'm glad he hasn't yet, but I did watch my daughter walk by in a dinosaur costume, you know, and my <laughs> wife grab her. She was almost about to open the door. So, so some of it is just, you kind of just got to like, forgive yourself that it's not going to be perfect and you're going to have kids showing up to some meetings that aren't great and you just have to let it go and you have to just not obsess over it. Because I think that's what I find is the biggest difference between moms and dads is like that'll happen to a dad and then they have forgotten it happens three minutes later. And the mom for the next 48 hours will be obsessing over like how that impacted that call. And so, so some of it for me is just kind of letting go and just, you know, it is what it is. Like I have kids and I'm working from home. How have you learned or do you have any tips on how to learn how to be that way? I think you have to fake it till you make it. I really do. I mean, I think, you know, when I took my job at blockchain, I had pre-negotiated that I would leave at five o'clock every day so I could have dinner with my son. And every day at five o'clock, my heart would pound and I would like slink out. Like at three o'clock, I would put some stuff by the door so it wasn't as obvious I was leaving. And then one day I was like, the pit in my stomach from three o'clock onward made me not productive for the last mm. two hours of my workday. And then when I was home having dinner with my son, I wasn't present because I was obsessing over the fact that the whole office was still in the office and I was at home. And, and it's like, nobody is winning in this scenario. Like no one. I'm, I'm not as productive. I'm not as present with my son. And so I just sort of made this decision. Like I, I joked about it, but I was like, what would white men do? And I just, I basically for two weeks promised myself that I would get up and walk out and say goodbye on my way out the door. Like, bye everyone. Have a great night. Bye everyone. Have a great, and like the first few night, few days, like my voice cracked and it was so uncomfortable. And by the second week, it was like, 
It was okay. I looked around and realized that the sky had not fallen, that nobody really cared, that my productivity had gone up. And, you know, so some of it I think is just doing it because only then will you realize that it's just not as, it's, it's worse in your head than it is in real life. And I think part of it too, and this is a position of great, great privilege, and I own that. Like, I don't want to be at a place that doesn't respect that. Part of my decision to work at Skillshare, you know, I asked a lot of questions about that in the interview cycle. And I, you know, I think five years earlier, I was afraid to admit I had kids when I was interviewing at Blockchain. And at Skillshare, it was like, look, when I die, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm, I'm just not going to care as much about my career as I'm going to care about whether or not I raised good humans and had good relationships with them. So like, here are the things that matter to me. Like, I'm not missing any recitals or, you know, and, and I was pretty, and again, position of privilege, very lucky to be able to do that. But I was really upfront with the CEO and the COO. I said, you know, like, is that going to be an issue? And luckily for me, Sabrina, the COO at our company has a very similar philosophy. So she's out the door, you know, when we were in the office, we were both out the door. It's actually, I will say the entire executive team has kids and we all have the same philosophy. So everyone signs off at around 530 to have dinner with their kids. A lot of us are back online when they go down, but like we all sign off. And so that, so I think some of it for me too, is just picking the right place and trying to interview for that when you're interviewing for a job. That's really, really great advice. Can you share what your biggest lesson was that you've learned this year through all of the changes and challenges that have occurred? Oh man, I, th- I don't know. I think it might be too soon for me to have any really big lessons. I think, I think for me, it's, I guess the two things that I think a lot about are you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Like, you know, I think what this year has taught me is just the need to prioritize. Like I just, particularly at the beginning of COVID, you know, we have this incredible babysitter who really is just wonderful, but, you know, obviously we wanted to make sure she stayed healthy. So we didn't have any childcare until July. So from March until actually the beginning of August had no, no help. And we had to divide our days. So my wife and I would look at our calendars and I'd say, okay, I'll take the kids from nine to 12 you get them from 12 to four. I'll take them again from four to six. And what you realize then is like, okay, I've only got five hours to get that done. I mean, I worked a lot at night. I was, it was, it's not, I wouldn't recommend it from a work, work, that life balance perspective, but, but you realize like when you have to say no to things, you realize you can say no to more than you do. So I think, I think that's one thing is like figuring out what really matters and then, and then being really strict about saying no to everything that doesn't. And then failing forward. I think, you know, and, and this isn't COVID related. This is more around, Black Lives Matter and the social justice, you know, work that so many of us are, are doing today. It's, it's scary and it can feel really hard and, you know, you're afraid to say the wrong thing. And, and so I think it, I've deepened my commitment to just failing forward to just, you know, it's like, I'm going to screw it up. I just want to make sure I'm learning while I screw things up so that I'm getting better every day. What would our audience be surprised to learn about you? Well, this is in my bio, but I think when I meet people, they genuinely don't believe it's true. So I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. So I love like salsa music and rice and beans. I also really love country music. Like (laughs) if you get in my car, I'm either listening to like yacht rock, NPR, or country music. That's so funny. What's your go-to? Go-to country karaoke song. I'm I'm like a Garth Brooks for karaoke, old school. You know, but, uh, but I like the new stuff too. So I don't know. That's something that I think people are, people are often surprised to know that I'm Puerto Rican because I don't necessarily look it, but yeah, I think that's one thing that oftentimes people are like, you like what? Otherwise I'm a pretty open book. So I don't know that there's a lot of secrets with me. Do you share your personal life on social media? You know, I'm not super, I'm more of a consumer on social media. I do like, if you're on my Instagram, 
So I've kept my Instagram to basically just family and very close friends. And so I do share pictures of my kids there. But even that, I will say, I watched, I'm, I'm one of the, the folks who watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And even that I've been pulling back a lot on. So I'm a big consumer. Like I've been living on Twitter with the election and I'm on, like I love Instagram, but I don't, I don't tend to share a ton. I don't think I'm that interesting. I feel like there's, I, I leave the sharing to folks who are much more interesting. Than I me. think you're so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Very sweet. Is there anything that you wish you knew sooner in your career that you know now? I wish I had, you know, I think I spent a lot of my career worried. Like, like, I don't know how quite to articulate it, but, you know, worried that it was all going to come to a screeching halt. Like, you know, when I was at Axiom, I remember having a moment where I thought maybe, maybe I'll look at for something else. Like it was probably one of those plateau moments before I steeped in the learning curve again and just thinking, what if I never get another job again? And, you know, I think, I think there was, I think what happens when you think that way is you end up focused more on what you can get versus what you want. And so I think I wish earlier on in my career that I had trusted that everything would be okay. You know, I will say though, like again, position of great privilege. And I, and I grew up, like I didn't grow up with very much money. I didn't have the ability to fall back on my parents if something didn't work through, work out. So I think a lot of it was genuine, like valid concerns that I'm not sure I could have done anything about. But I think if I could have gone back to my, like myself 10 years ago, I, it would have been nice to say like, you're going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say you're most grateful for every day now? I am deeply grateful for my village. Like I'm deeply, deeply grateful for my family and my friends. And I think as I've gotten older, I have realized just how rare it is to have the network of friends that I have. So I am an introvert. I'm not somebody who's like, you know, I'm sort of a homebody, but I have this incredibly deep bench of really good friends. So I don't have a lot of acquaintances, but I have really good friends. I have, you know, there are five women. There's, there's three women I went to high school with. There's four women I went to college with, and then there are four women that I've become friends with since, since I graduated college and they are like family. And, and I think as a woman, and they're all, you know, they have different careers, but they're just a sounding board. So, so to be able to call them and say, I'm having this really hard thing, both personally and, and professionally and have folks that I trust who will tell me when I'm being crazy or tell me when I'm being wrong or you know, be a cheerleader when that's what I need. I think that that's probably the thing I'm, I'm most deeply grateful for. Is there any piece of advice or last piece of advice? Cause you've shared so much good stuff to our listeners. One essential career tip, you know, just know your worth. Like, I think one thing that I say to my team all the time when I'm having one-on-one conversations, particularly around career progression is, so it's, it's know your worth, but also it's back to this thing I said earlier around, like it's a business. So, you know, Figure out what job you want in a few years and then make damn sure that you're getting experiences that get you there. Now, that doesn't mean that you only do those things, but, you know, make sure you're building a narrative that will get you to the next thing. And I think we don't often enough do that. And for, for I think, really good reasons. Like, I think people are focused on like, well, I like the work that I'm doing and it's interesting. And, but I think it's really important that you take a step back at least once a year and assess, have I grown in the last year? What is my, like, you should redo your resume every year every year. And you should make sure that that narrative is progressing because I, I've come across a number of folks who have done really great stuff, but they can't package it in a way that makes them compelling externally. And, and then they feel really stuck. And so I think that's one, one thing that I would encourage folks to do, even if you're running your own business, right? Like I think even if you're running your own business, like what is that, what does succeeding at that look like? And then make sure that you're getting enough of those wins on the board 
so that if the business for some reason doesn't take off, you can make some, you know, you have a really good narrative for why you're, you're a great hire or a great resource. That's such a good tip. And on the resume side, are your resume courses on Skillshare? You know, I don't know. So we're mostly focused on creativity. So there may be one or two because we have some user generated content. So, so folks can upload classes on their own, but most of our courses are more sort of lifestyle creativity focused. So if you wanted to learn anything in the Adobe suite, Skillshare is your place, um, but also things like sustainability. Like there's a really great class about how to diminish waste at home. There's interior design classes, creative writing. So, so more along those lines. No, that's really incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your journey with our Entreprenista audience. Where can everyone find you, follow you? And for our listeners that are interested in signing up for Skillshare, where can they go? Absolutely. So if you go to Skillshare.com, uh, you can sign up and, and we do have a two-week trial so folks can check it out before they, they officially become members. And then you can find me, my handles are all LM Duzman, which is a combination of my wife's last name and mine. So it's D-O-U-Z-M-A-N. Thank you so much, Liana, for being here. I'm Stephanie. I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.